This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Our guys today have got a special guest on the show, and his name is Jim Warner Wallace. So Jim is a cold case homicide detective by trade. Also, he's a popular national speaker and a best-selling author. He is also the senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He is also, this is going to be the also intro, guys, because he's an adjunct professor of apologetics at the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University in Southern Evangelical Seminary, and he's faculty member at Summit Ministry. So this guy is, is very, very interesting, and I really enjoyed my time with him because he became a Christ follower at the age of 35. And he did so after investigating the claims of the New Testament Gospels using his skill set as a detective. I mean, how many guys do you know that have done that and became a Christian on the back end? It's not really a it's not really a story that you're going to hear very often. And he eventually was he earned his master's degree in theological studies from Gateway Seminary. Here's the thing with this guy is you've likely heard the name and you've likely seen some of his stories because you would have caught him on television at some point because his cases have been featured on Dateline NBC. I think he has the most cases ever featured on Dateline NBC. He's also had stuff on Court TV and Fox News. He's written a lot of books that I think some of you guys have come across. And I think I mentioned some on this podcast. Cold Case Christianity, God's Crime Scene, and Forensic Faith, in addition to a new book, which we talk a lot about today, which is called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. So part of the reason why I like this interview so much today is because he has a very unique perspective on how he came to faith, but also a unique perspective in how he applies what he's learned in his job as a cold case detective into how he can undergird and provide scaffolding for his Christian worldview. Because a lot of Christians today, they don't really have a reason why they believe the way that they believe. They're just like, oh, I, you know, I was born in Oklahoma, so I guess I'll be a Christian. Or I've just gone to church since I was a little kid, so I guess I'll be a Christian. Or, oh, some Christians seem nice, so I guess I'll do that. He rejects that almost entirely because he wants Christians Christians, because as an atheist, growing up as an atheist, he saw Christians as these people with these squishy intellects, right? They just believed these silly things and didn't really know why. But also, we didn't just spend time talking about that. We also talked a lot about manhood and masculinity within the church, because that's something that he and I talked about off air before we even got going. I'm like, man, I need to go ahead and start recording this so we can start to get some of this laid down. And then we kept the conversation going well after the recording ended. But guys, I really, really enjoyed my time with Jim. I think you will as well. So I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Jim Warner Wallace, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, I just got to tell you, all, to all my listeners, you and I just had a really great conversation off air that hopefully I can bring on no, to air, which is kind of no. my job here. So we'll we'll see. Now that we was can... all wasted. We shouldn't even had that conversation. Uh, that's now we're not going to have any of it now. Hey, well, we're going to see what we can do to make sure it's not wasted. But I want to get okay. started in, I guess, the most broad way possible because you've done a lot of great things in your career that have kind of been in the same vein. But you were a detective before you mm -hmm. became a Christian apologist. And just the fact yep. that you were both is fairly unique. So I guess uh, a two-part question to start us off here. What drew you to the line of work in terms of being a detective, law enforcement, becoming an officer, and how did you end up doing cold case work? Because that's not a common thing even in the law enforcement world. Yeah. So I, my dad was a cop and I think I just watched him. Uh, he divorced my mom when he, we were very young. So, so I was not raised by my dad. He was more like the kind of guy that you like, you know, like an uncle that you're like, you know, and I had that kind of relationship, really more of a friend relationship or a mentor relationship than a father relationship with him. And by the time I was, I was in grad school, I was at UCLA and I didn't know about, I, I had tinkered with the idea of going into law enforcement, but as I kind of got older, I realized that it would be a great, it's an honorable job. My dad raised a second family with, you know, they were struggled financially, but it was stable. Um, it was honorable. Uh, he had six kids with his second wife. And I looked at my wife at the time, I, we were just dating. And I said, this, this job would be better for us as a married couple than, and that really, that selfish reason is why I ended up in law enforcement. Now, God uses, you know, your skills. I was not a Christian for another almost 10 years. Um, but, um, I, you know, had a chance to kind of learn some things as a, as a, as an officer. And I right away kind of advanced up and did a lot of, I was in SWAT for three years. I worked gangs for two years. I worked a lot of street dope. Um, I worked undercover. Um, uh, and eventually I ended up being assigned to robbery homicide. And when you're assigned to homicide, we have a bunch of unsolved homicides that go back you know, 30 years and they would assign these as collateral duties. Well, you know, I got fresh homicides. I'm not inclined to work 
a, another case if I don't have to. Nobody is. Right. So these 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 old unsolved murders would really basically go nowhere. Two years into having these assigned to us, nobody had advanced their case, and 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 we were kind of feeling like, hey, you know, we're kind of busy. But I got injured, and after getting injured, um, I was just I was light duty, so I wasn't getting assigned anything new. So I said, well, give me this, this other case, this old unsolved murder. And I solved it. And that's what launched us because that case right away, uh, we know we're not that far from uh, NBC universal. So that case ended up on Dateline. And then we had a string of cases on Dateline. And as long as those cases were on Dateline, I discovered my agency was keen on the idea of keeping a cold case team together. And so I had a partner, a couple partners, uh, as they retired out, I would get a new one and uh, did that for a number of years. And that's really kind of what people think of me now as the cold case guy. But that's what, that's how I started working cold cases. It was really just because I was injured and solved the first one. And that right. started a series. Well, it's funny you mentioned Dateline because to be honest with you, I would say the majority of the American population, their only connection to cold case police work is Dateline or or some sort of similar show or something like that. But uh, with that being the case, I'm sure that leads to a lot of misconceptions. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you've heard or experienced about what cold case detectives do or what that work even is? Well, I think one of the, I mean, a lot of cold cases are being made now by advances in technology. And the only reason why the case is getting reopened is because we have something we can do today that we couldn't do 30 years ago. We didn't have DNA 30 years ago. We have DNA now. We didn't have, heck, we didn't even have ancestry connections in DNA 10 years ago. We have that now. So as this progresses technologically, we can go back and solve old cases. Now, I just didn't have any luck with that. That's the misconception that most people have. Oh, you solved this with DNA? I've got one case we cleared two years ago with DNA. I opened that case in 2003. I think I got the DNA. I found the DNA that had been stored for years and had been lost. And I submitted it, I think in 2006. We didn't uh, submit that DNA. There was no hit. Our databases, nobody hit. So we still had an unknown killer. And it was a 10-year-old girl that he had killed. So we knew this was probably a sexual predator. We probably could make this case eventually. No one does one of these. A guy like that's probably done a hundred of these. So at some point he's going to get locked up. Well, it turns out with Ancestry DNA in 2017, we were able to submit and find his daughter. We ultimately then found out who he was, and he had been dead for 15 years. Mm. But we cleared the case in 2019. But almost well, every other case I've ever worked was not uh, solved with technology. It wasn't solved with DNA. It's just solved the old-fashioned way, which is, hey, we got to figure out like, like what, where should we look for the stuff that was overlooked earlier? And that's a lot of what we're doing is we're trying to look in those places where maybe you weren't looking before. And um, that's how we solve. Now, kind of bring it down uh, to really my level, having not been in any type of law enforcement before, you know, you watch too much television or movies and you're like, oh, detectives are constantly doing this. You're constantly getting in gunfights. I'm sure it's not nearly as sexy as that, but like, what does the day to day look like for somebody? Because again, you know, if you watch first 48 or any of those types of things, you know, the further you get away from bang or from, you know, fuse or whatever, it's going to become a big issue in trying to solve a case. What are the types of things that you're actually looking for? And I I promise we'll get to your books, his books in a second, guys, don't worry. I'm not going to ask him about his detective work the whole time, but I am just curious. Well, you're absolutely, you mentioned the best show on TV when it comes to showing what detectives do. It's the first 48. Every other show is just flat stupid. Now, Dateline does a good job of kind of re-chronicling this investigation, but it doesn't give you any insight into what the day looks like. And the first 48 does give you a sense, at least, of when you're in that chase mode. Now, cold cases are different. Because the guy who's guilty of this doesn't even know you reopened the case until you knock on his door. So I can time when I want this to jump off, right? Because once I knock on his door, it's like you're in the first 48 again. Because that's done, he's going to start scrambling around, destroying evidence, calling people, you know, changing testimony, doing all the stuff that people do in the first 48. Well, he's kind of let this go for 20 years. He, he's thinking he's got away with it. Until I let, so that's why I don't interview anyone who's going to get back to him. I'm very careful. When I knock on his door, I, don't, I want to make sure that I, this is the first he's heard of a, a reopened investigation. He didn't see this coming because two years ago, someone called him who I interviewed. So I always pick the periphery first and I work down toward the center. Then I knock on his door. Now we're into that first 48 again. A lot of it is kind of the stuff you see uh, where you're just, you're chasing down leads. You're talking to people. You're trying to collect this evidence before somebody else does. A lot of that is what it is. But look, all of us who work as detectives, uh, we started off as patrol officers. You know, people will say, well, how can I be a detective? 
And I, well, do you want to work patrol? Do you want to handle mm-hmm. drunk bar fights? Do you want to handle domestic violence calls? Do you want to write tickets and do all the other stupid stuff you have to do as a patrol officer? Well, no, I just want to work murders. Well, that's the problem is that, that, that to get here, you have to do 10 years of that. And then eventually you get a chance to move up and do other things. So a lot of what we do in terms of the dangerous side of having to, you know, defend yourself and, 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 you know, you know, be shot at all that's that's going to happen in the years. Now, does it happen also at the point of search warrants for detect? Yes. At any time you put yourself in the proximity of somebody who is ultimately going to have to go to jail, you put yourself at higher risk. So yeah, while you're off at the periphery, you know, interviewing witnesses, there's less risk. But once you get to the point where you're going to have to put handcuffs on somebody, that's where the risk is. And there's, there have, we've had officers in our agency killed at that point, at the point of serving the search warrant or at the point of we're knocking on the door of the suspect now. That's where the risk is. Yeah, tons of risk there. And I'm sure whenever you do end up cuffing one of these guys, the level of satisfaction has to be incredibly high, especially if they've been not even on the run, just living their own life for maybe decades at that point. And this is a a little bit of an unfair question because we don't have all day to unpack it. But is there one case or one person that you got way after the fact that was especially satisfying? Is there one that maybe sticks out that's not in a book that we're about to talk about? Well, they're all satisfied. Well, I, 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 there's a weird thing that happens that I noticed in one of these cases that then forever afterwards affected the way I thought about the cases. And, and that was we had a guy who, who had killed, done a murder of his wife years earlier and didn't know we were coming after him. Our knock on his door was the very first time he had ever. And we were not there to do an interview. We had enough information to make an arrest. So we're knocking on this guy's door as a team you know, five detectives and a sergeant, and it was not in our city. So we had the local police with us also, but we had, we had an arrest warrant. And so we're knocking on his door for the first time uh, at the point of arrest. And he was watching a Lakers game and um, he was an older guy and he had a very nice uh, condominium and he had a very nice uh, den and they had a huge big screen TV. And, um, for back in those days, that was pretty unusual. This is maybe like 12, 13 years ago. So that was actually relatively rare. <laughs> Anyone had a TV this nice because he had money. And he had a beer that he had just opened. And it was standing on the little round table that was next to his recliner. So he's just settling down to watch the Lakers game. And that beer had just been opened. And he gets a knock on his door. And he gets up and he opens the door and we come in. And we have to kind of lock the place up. So we're turning off, you know, eventually we turn off the lights and lock the doors and I turn off the TV and I look over at the beer and we'd been there long enough that there is now moisture, that condensation on the outside of the bottle that was dripping down and around the bottom of the, the bottle. And I thought to myself, he is never going to enter this room again. Somebody's going to get called to clean this place up, to lock up his stuff, to pack his stuff. But he's never going to touch that bottle. He, he's never going to touch another bottle. He's never going to drink a beer again. And as we're driving in, it was in a different county. We're driving back into our, our station to do the processing. I realized that he is looking out the window right now and seeing a part of California that he's probably seen every, you know, all the time for most of his life. But he'll never see it again. And the, the finality of what we do, uh, and people, by the way, when you take them to jail, they're thinking, oh, I'll bail. Oh, I want to beat this. Why? Because he's gotten away with it for 30 years. And so he's thinking, but I know how good the case is and I know he's not coming out. And yeah. it, it, you, you can't even convince him that that's the case. You can't even convince them that, hey, I know it seems like you're going to be out probably tomorrow, bail out, but I'm going to tell you, you're about to spend the rest of your life in clothes that you don't pick, doing things that you don't control, uh, in a place that you don't want to be. Now, I don't ever feel bad about that because it turns out that this guy's been out for 30 years. If it had been flipped and he had done 10 years and had been paroled for, he got to do his parole first. Mm-hmm. He, he's been out for 30 years. And, and a while you can say, well, yeah, he's about to spend the rest of his life in jail. Well, his wife has been dead this entire time. She got to, there was no rest of her life. Mm-hmm. So I never feel all that bad about people who go to jail for these kinds of things. 
But it does strike you as it's happening in real time that, wow, you're about to take this guy's freedoms from him and how precious that freedom really is. Now, what I thought you were going to say, Jim, is that you took that beer, you walked over to the cruiser and looked at him in the back, knocked on it and said, hey, hey, I've got your beer right here. And just yeah, chug, yeah, chug, yeah. chug. That's what I thought yeah. you were going to say. That would probably have been a little no. bit more satisfying, but wouldn't have been as great uh, for your reputation. Or maybe it would have made you a legend. Who knows? Well, but Yeah, it probably would have made me a legend. But you, you can be you can be legendary. Has You want to be famous and not infamous. So right. so I'm very happy to. I was, a, I was a Christian, you know, by the time I was working this case. And I also just feel like hey there's I, I i know i i never treat my arrestees this way in a way that is mocking because i don't know what they're going to say to me two hours from now i don't know what we're going to as a matter of fact what i want to do with all these guys is develop a relationship as quickly as i can um uh, because in the end i got a lot of these guys who stay in touch with me for years afterwards and and really what is the goal here um it's justice we just want some form of justice you're never going to get closure for anybody uh, they always think, oh, I want closure. I want to go to finally go to jail after all this time. Well, you might get a sense of closure if someone's repentant. That's what I do think is available for a lot of victims. Like I think what they really like is not just that we take the guy to jail, but that he would admit it, that he did it. And he would say he's sorry, right? It's when people don't admit it and never say they're sorry that, that the family kind of feels like there's more that needs to happen here. And that's why I think they have a sense that there's not, it's not closed. In other words, it's you'd be surprised. People are so angry at the guy who did this to their family member. Mm. And then if at some point this guy says, oh, you know what? I did it. I'm sorry. I've been tortured by, I know I put you through a lot and they're totally repentant. You'll see that angry family member will turn on a dime mm. and go, well, okay, well, I can't be mad at him. I mean, he's, he's, it's hard to be mad at people who are truly repentant. Yeah, I think that's a, a great lesson that a lot of us don't really get to see because we don't really get to see that in our line of work. But as you mentioned just a second ago, Jim, at this point of the case that you just described, you were a Christian, but you didn't become a Christian for a large portion of your life. So as I understand it, you were in your mid-30s when you became a Christian. Yeah, and I was you 35. Did, okay, mm -hmm. and, so, and you did so after spending a great deal of really your investigation skills testing the reliability and historicity of the New Testament gospels and all the things therein. And so uh, we could spend the rest of our time just talking about that, but I do want to dig into the books. Take us through that process, because I think there are a lot of people that kind of had that coming of age story that happened a little bit later. Like not everybody has that. Yeah, I was saved in youth group when I was seven years old or at church camp when I was 10. You were an adult. You'd already gone through university. You'd already been out in the real world as it were. Yeah. And then you started using your skills that you developed along your life to test the Bible. So you can take this question wherever you want to go to give our audience an idea as to kind of what was happening around that time. Yeah. And I, and I've written about this now. I've got a book called person of interest where I, for the first time I've started to tell a little bit more of my, I don't, I'm not impressed by personal stories. I hate to say that experiences don't mean anything to me and I don't trust experiences. I really trust the data. What's the facts. Okay. I don't care how you feel about things. I need to know what do the facts demonstrate? So, so for me, I was not really interested in Christianity. didn't know anybody in Los Angeles County. Didn't know anybody here who um, growing up, nobody ever invited me to church or to a youth. I didn't know Christians. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't never felt to me like a, it felt very secular. It felt like this is normal. Like the Christians are the weird ones or they're just, mm -hmm. okay, but there's something going on over there, I guess. And I would drive by churches, but I never thought about what was happening there until I got to be an adult. And then I realized that a lot of the Christians that I was meeting were pretty lame in terms mm -hmm. of their ability to either describe what they believe and why they believe it, or to consistently live as though it mattered, as though it was actually true. And I would see both groups there. I'd saw you know, a lot of officers who are very evidential about lots of things until it comes to their faith. And then they're all kind of touchy-feely about that. And then I see a lot of people I was taking to jail who would tell me they were Christians. You know, you go into these houses to do search warrants and there's big, you know, pictures, uh, either Roman Catholic kind of imagery or crosses or, or nice Bible verses. I'm thinking, really? Yeah, this this is just what a, a farce. And yeah. so I, I, I held that view for a long time. But I did go to church with my wife because she was thinking, well, is, is this should this be part, even though it wasn't that way for me growing up, should this be part of how we raise our kids? Like, should we expose them to this stuff? I don't know if it was because maybe she had met somebody that she thought or uh, but it, it started becoming we never we were together 18 years before we became Christians wow. and we never talked about the things of God, quote unquote, ever. It was not on our radar. And then we had kids and it was like, well, should we take our kids to like to church? And I'm like, no, 
But if you want to go, I'll go because I want to be a good husband. So if you want, if you think it's important, I don't think you have to believe it in order for it to have value to our kids. So I'm happy to go. And but the first church we walked into, that was you know a church that we ended up at for about three or four years. Um, that that pastor described Jesus as in a very self not not selfish, but I mean in a way that someone like me who was selfish could hold on to, could be interested. He said that Jesus was smart. And so I was just looking to glean the wisdom of Jesus. Like, what can I learn about, learn about life, learn about, you know, wisdom from an ancient sage. So I bought a Bible for that, that only that purpose, thinking it would be a collection of proverbial statements. But when I read through the gospels, I realized, Hey, this is, looks like, like the kind of account that like a supplemental report from an event in the past, this is the kind of account I could test. So I looked at everything. You know, when we talk about what's evidence, that's the real thing. Like I'm not churched in that way. Um, uh, I always use this analogy. If you're a, an alien who's flying into the, from the universe and you're flying toward Earth and you've got an assistant who says, hey, you're going to about to meet a bunch of people on this planet called Earth. A lot of them are Christians. You want to read their, their manual so you can see what they're going to be like. And so he gives you a Bible and the New Testament. You read the Gospels. You read the book of Acts. Do you think you'd be surprised when you finally land on planet Earth and you get out of your ship and you see how Christians are organized and how they worship in the world today, given the fact you were expecting to see something from the New Testament. I think you would be surprised. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you would say, well, this is noble. This Jesus guy was a noble guy. And, and what they, how they behaved in the book of Acts seems also quite noble. Um, but, but I don't know why this is happening here in 2021. Well, that was me. I was that alien who has not had no idea what, it was to even go to church, what was happening in those buildings, what Christianity was anything about. But I did get a New Testament and I dived in. I mean, I really studied it. And then I wondered, why are we doing it this way? Or like I had a hard time, just being honest, I had a hard time as a as somebody who was absolutely and utterly unchurched, figuring out like, what what does this life look like now? Um and, and so that's, that was a struggle early for me. So here's what I would say that the book I just wrote is takes an approach. I taken a lot of no body murders where I simply, uh, you know, if you don't have a body, if someone kills somebody and they get rid of the body and then there's no evidence, a crime even occurred. She's just missing. It's a missing persons report. No one takes a report for a murder. No one does an investigation. No one takes any photographs. No one collects any evidence. Now, 30 years later, how do you solve the crime? Well, you, you, you demonstrate that that bomb that went off on the day she went missing, that had a fuse and that burned for a long time. The hostility between her and her husband, his plans to get rid of her, all the things he needed to do to get in place before he could kill her, that's part of the fuse. Then afterwards, there's all kinds of fallout, all the behaviors he did to cover this thing up. Fuse and fallout will tell you what happened on the day that she disappeared. So if you uh, said, okay, can I make a case for Jesus from scripture? Of course you can. And I've done that. That's in a book called Cold Case Christianity. But in this book, Person of Interest, I'm suggesting that even if you destroyed the New Testament, the fuse and fallout of history would be enough for you to conclude that Jesus is who he said he was. So that's what we're doing here. We're taking a worst case scenario. Imagine there's no New Testament. You're still stuck with Jesus. Absolutely. And we're going to get way more into person of interest here in just a second, but I have a few follow-ups in terms of some of the things that you just said. So a lot of your work that you've done up to this point, because you've written books, Cold Case Christianity, God's right. Crime Scene, Forensic Faith. One thing that kind of undergirds all that, and you mentioned it a little bit a second ago, Jim, is that you're trying to give Christians a framework you know, that gives them the yeah. confidence when they're That's describing right. or defending their faith, because you're 100% right. Most Christians are, are Christians kind of in name only. They're nominally Christian. They're culturally Christian. Look, I was born in Oklahoma, so I'm a Christian by dint of birth, right? right but right. why why do so many Christians, in your opinion, because you've, you've done this for a long time now as a Christian apologist, why do so many Christians seemingly lack the will, desire, and I guess capability to defend their faith with any type of cogency? Okay, let me ask you this. Why is it that as men, we know we ought to work out, but few of us actually do? It's so uh, hard. And I don't want to get sweaty and then I'm going to get yeah. sore and blah, blah, and, blah. And why is it we have a duty to know what's happening in our country? But for the most part, we don't read as much news. We don't. We, in other words, it all comes down to the base human nature, which is I'm probably going to do the least I need to do in order to achieve the most I can having done the least. Right. That's just our nature, right? If I can, if I have to work five days to do this, or I can actually get this tomorrow, 
why do you think Amazon Prime is taking off, right? I could get in a car and drive down and pay a little less. Right. Or let's show up here tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I can wait till tomorrow. It's easier, right? Okay. That is our view of everything. That's our view when it comes to educating our kids. I could homeschool my kids, but you know, that's the do you see what I'm saying? It's to, Absolutely. A, a spiritual maturity as well. Oh, I could catechize my own kids and bring them up in the faith, or I could let my youth pastor do it. I think a lot of this just comes down to which is it and, and, and look, if I'm already in, if I'm already saved, whether I know whether or not this is true or not, whether I have any good reason to believe it's true or not, if if, if I just saying I give my if I can just say these words and I'm in, then why would I want to like well, look, for me, it's that I'm geeked out on the issue. I mean, mm-hmm. I love the evidence, period, for almost anything. And and this is the evidence for Jesus of Nazareth, who's to me the most important anything. So so I'm just geeked out on it. So I'm more inclined to do this anyway. right? But I'm also geeked out about football. And we're in the middle of football season. <laughs> right. So I can tell you pretty much where I think every team in the NFL is going to land in the next five weeks. Because I'm paying attention and I have a view. And I'm pretty well. Uh, I'm geeked out enough to know who the coaches are, who the best players are, and what the backs of uh, who the backups are, and what the liabilities of each team are. Why do I know all that? That's a bunch of stuff that's going to do me absolutely no good. Mm-hmm. But I've spent, and I suspect I always say this: a lot of us as guys, we are not beyond the ability to to learn deeply about topics we're geeked out on. We just don't find this to be one of those topics. So there's something that you know, you know the HR manual at your business, or you know whatever the the, the, the text is that you became an entrepreneur with. You, there's stuff that you are willing to invest your time and your mind in. You just don't think the Bible is one of them. Yeah, and That's I, the I think reality of it. Yeah, it's not just the Bible; it's faith overall. Because I've had this conversation with so many different people. It's like, look, we don't need to understand everything there is to know. We don't need to be able to explain dinosaurs, Jonah and the whale, like how they got all those animals on that one ship. We don't need to discuss any of those things. But can you tell me whether or not you believe the resurrection happened? Because that's that's the center point for basically our entire faith. The the Old Testament oh, undergirds dude, that. Dude, you know what are I mean? you really going to try to? Are you sounding like Andy Stanley now? Is that, is that where you're headed with this? Uh, no, no, no. Okay. I'm not saying we should we should take things away. I'm not going to go. No, to no. Stanley I'm not, and not I don't even you. think. And, and honestly, I don't think the Stanley thinks that either. I mean, yeah. he's been very well catechized by Norm Geisler at DTS when he when mm-hmm. he was going through seminary. I just think it's about you know precision and how we get clipped out and how sermons are clipped and how exposed to the world. I'm just teasing you about that. But I, but I, I think you're, you're for me that was that was the key issue. The key issue is, but at the same time, my kids growing up wanted to know how we fit all those animals on the ark. My kids want to know how reasonable it is to assume there's a single birth pair from which all humans descend. My kids want to know if it's a global flood. My kids want to know these Mm. things. And so I have a duty. If I can answer why I think that that this weekend um, that Heineke might beat Dak Prescott, in a game between the the Redskins, well, not the Redskins, the Washington football team yeah. and Dallas Cowboys. And by the way, I can probably make that case. If my kids ask me about football, I can answer the question. But if my kids ask me about the 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 the, the claims of the Old Testament or the New Testament, I'm flat footed. Yeah, really, shame on me. So so yeah, do I need? Look, I don't even need to know. Have those those answers have been asked and answered for me. I've already settled those issues in my mind. There's no more reason for me to think about it. Yet I often think about it because I know someone's going to probably ask me that question at some point. Right. And it's it's things that have to be reckoned with. And people are reckoning with whether or not they should go with this receiver or that receiver in their fantasy draft. And they're not reckoning yes, that's with right. any of the important things in history, which is why I really appreciate it. And again, thank you so much for sending me a copy of this book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. Uh, that's your newest book that you released in 2021. You've described it, you know, kind of gave us a 30,000 foot overview. But one thing about yeah. this book, Jim, that I felt like was fairly unique is... I guess, number one, how easy it was to follow, because technically there were like three different storylines of this book. You were talking about, you know, a nobody homicide, a specific one, which I won't ruin for the reader. You're going to have to get the book. It's in the show notes and check it out for yourself. So that was number one. Number two was your personal investigation of the claims of Christianity. And number three was Jesus being the person of interest, right? Jesus kind of being the center point for all these other things that have kind of played out in society. So, so for you, just kind of take me into the the, the nexus of this book a little bit deeper. Why write it that way in a way where you kind of have these three different storylines? Cause I just got to tell you, I'm not much for nonfiction. This is obviously, or I'm sorry, I'm not much for fiction. I'm mainly a nonfiction reader, but a lot of this read like fiction in a good way, because I was like, what's going to happen? Are they going to, are they going to find the guy? Are they going to figure it out? So why write it in that yeah. way? 
Okay, so for personal reasons, I think, and probably not not like good theological reasons or philosophical reasons, just a couple of things. Number one, uh, growing up, before I became, I was involved in the arts. Uh, my background was in architecture. I was working as an architect when I decided to become a police officer. So I've always had this creative itch that needs to be scratched. And when I was in law enforcement, the first thing I did five years into the job was start a band. Okay. <laughs> Cause I just needed, I didn't need a creative outlet. And so we had a bunch of cops who could barely play instruments, but we figured out how to cobble together a band and we would do this, these, these, uh, citywide kind of shows. Uh, you know, if, if there was an event in the city, they would invite the cop band and we would come and we would play. So it gave us an instant audience, right? We never got paid anything, of course, but we gave us an instant audience. And so I was scr scratching that itch. I grew up wanting to be a novelist and I just didn't know how to turn that corner. So I ended up in art, I ended up in architecture, I ended up in law enforcement. I expressed my creativity by creating visual presentations for jurors. And that's how we solved and prosecuted all of our cases. What it really comes down to is that fuse and fallout is pretty visual. And now I can make the entire thing visual because I've given you a word picture that you can now, I can now illustrate. And it turns out that approach ended up providing us with tough cases that are hard to express became easier to express the connectivity between certain lines of evidence became easier to express if i can find a visual analogy and it's different for every case mm. but nobody person nobody missings nobody uh, murders i would take this fuse and fallout approach so a lot was trying to be creative like tr create a scenario that's why i think you won't hear about that fuse and fallout anywhere else in, in, in law enforcement, no. because, you know, I'm trying to create things that will make difficult cases easier. So when it came to this book, I had already written three kids books, uh, cold case, Christianity for kids, forensic faith for kids, God's crime scene for kids. I have the adult books and the kids books and the kids books. I knew that if I just start talking about the facts for Jesus, blah, 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 blah. It's going to be like the, you know, the Charlie Brown cartoon. Yeah. So I wasn't going to do that. Instead, I involved the kids in little mysteries. Oh, how do, where did this shoebox come from? Where did this skateboard come yeah. from? Where did this puppy come from? Each book has a mystery. And then at the second half of the chapter, I take a skill I just taught you to solve the mystery and we use it to solve the mystery of Jesus. But Kids love to find out what where that shoebox came from, and they would turn those pages to figure out where the shoebox came from. So I had to figure out how to integrate the story in such a way that they would be learning about Jesus or about God as they are solving the case of the shoebox. So when it came to time to write, this is book number eight for us, I said, you know, I'm going to write a kid's book for adults. We're going to take the same approach. Now, we that, that murder is 80% of a murder that I really worked. But I, I tell you up front, I'm going to change some of the details. So I took three nobody murders that I've investigated. I kind of blended them so that I changed all the names. So I'm hoping that no one is going to later on think, I, you know, if you've exposed my life to people, I get that. So I try to be respectful for victims' families too. So anyway, the point is that was the approach I took. But I'm moving more and more toward, I mean, I've got another book I'm writing next. It'll have another real case in it. But I think after that, I'm done chronicling real cases. I want to start writing fiction because mm -hmm. I have always, this is the, the selfish part of me. This is how I see it. Um, Nonfiction is like a cover band. Fiction is like a singer songwriter. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it, it, I was just listening to an interview with Steve Perry from, from, from talking about uh, don't stop believing that song that they wrote together, mm -hmm. okay, which is now still one of the biggest songs used in all kinds of movies and everything. And he was talking about writing that song. And I thought, you know, I've, I've played that song because I'm a big Neil Sean fan, that guitarist for Journey. And, and so we've played those. We've covered those songs. That's not, I mean, we, just, we listen, you listen, you listen, you, you learn how to cover it. Mm -hmm. But I could never write the thing. I mean, that's, that's a whole other level of creative. It's one thing to cover somebody else's hit. It's another thing to write hits. So right. uh, the challenge of fiction to me is like, oh, I want to, and I think I'll probably be a miserable failure. But what I'm trying to do with these books is kind of exercise some of the skill set I'll need later. Like, how do I turn corners to get you to turn to the next chapter? Like, how do I do that pace a book? Those are the kinds of things I'm trying to learn now. So, and I think this book does that, I hope, um, and tells well, the story. 
Jim, I'll just tell you, like, I'm, I'm not going to blow smoke. Like, I think you did a masterful job, masterful job of that because you could really get lost in the detail of the book and in a good way. But like for some guys, it might be kind of hard to really kind of go through and make sure how do we understand all these things. So having that narrative was a little bit of a, of a reprieve. So if you're not used to reading things that are that heady or difficult, the the story is the thing that kind of keeps you going through as a through point. So in my yeah. personal opinion, which I'm just one guy, I think you nailed it. So good job on you. But uh, you've mentioned this several times, so I want to get into it a little bit deeper. Yeah. If if I had to really summarize this entire book, it would be the concept that you introduced to me, which is fuse and fallout, fuse and fallout. Now you talk about several different fuses with Jesus. You talk about cultural fuses, spiritual fuses, prophetic fuses, uh, and then there's all the fallout therein that we've seen. Again, it is impossible in the time we have left yeah, to really go yeah, into detail, guys. You have to get the book so that you can get into it. But can you give us maybe a 30,000 foot overview of fuse and fallout, specifically how it applies to the historicity of Jesus? Yeah. And I, I just love talking about the stuff, Kyle, that you want to talk about. So I don't want to spend much more time talking about this. But I, I'll tell you that the idea here is that Jesus comes according to Paul. He says in Galatians that God sends his son in the fullness of time. There's something about the timing of Jesus. And this is true of all crimes, too, by the way. That It's not just where does it occur that tips me off as to who did it. It often does. If it happens in this house and you're the only two people living here, probably a good chance you're one of the two people involved. But it's also when it occurs. Because the, the, the preconditions and the the deadlines that any suspect is up against will tell you who your suspect is. If the dude is going to leave and fly out of the country tomorrow and then the murder happens today and then he flies away tomorrow, you can see how the timing of the murder might give you an indication of who's involved. Same is true for Jesus. Something happens in the first century. We're calling it the first century when it's not the first century. Why are we calling it that? Because something happens that resets the calendar. And then the question becomes, well, what, what is it that's burning that might give you an indication? And it's prophecies of the Old Testament. It's the expectations of ancient people groups who have imagined God, like Paul says in Acts 17. You guys are imagining a lot about God. You're very religious, but I'm here to tell you what you have imagined has already arrived. Here it is. And so this is the idea that all of these people are now present. They're worshiping their myths. The prophecies are timing down. It's going to, Daniel says he's going to show up before the destruction of the temple. That's in 70 AD. So you got a deadline you're trying to meet, and then the Roman Empire is providing open window opportunities. You now have language. You now have an Etruscan alphabet. You now have the technology called something simple as papyrus. You have roads now that are in place. You have a 200-year period of peace called the Pax Romana. Whatever happens now in this small window of opportunity called the first century is going to take over the world because of all the preconditions that have been met. And that's what we're trying to show. Now, I'll just tell you, uh, our art side of me, I want to illustrate everything for juries. I want them to see it visually. So this book has over 400 illustrations. And it's hard to explain timeline things mm -hmm. unless you can see the timeline. Right, exactly. So it's like, okay, it's hard to explain. But if you just see the timeline, you will know why Jesus arrives when he arrives. It was inevitable, given the fuse that was burning. And then in terms of fallout, look, as an atheist, all this stuff that mattered to me before I became a Christian, let me tell you what it was. Pretty simple. Art, music, literature, education, science. That's it. Those five things mattered more than anything else culturally to me. Well, it turns out those five things are so utterly dependent on Jesus and the worldview he inaugurated and that was lived out in his followers' lives that you cannot have art, literature, music, education, and science the way you know it today if not for the arrival of Jesus. His impact in those five areas is greater than any other historical figure. And from those five areas, you can completely reconstruct the story of Jesus so that if the New Testament had been destroyed, you can recreate that from the writings of, of ancients in the first 300 years of the Common Era. You can reconstruct that from the songs sung in the first 300 years of the Common Era. You can reconstruct that scene and scene episode uh, episode in classic art painted in the first 800 years. You can reconstruct that from the campuses of the top universities in the, in the world that bear the image and the scriptures of the New Testament because the top 15 universities in the world were all founded by Christians. And in the sciences, no one has had a bigger impact on science. The entire scientific revolution, the vast, vast, vast majority of scientists who made an impact and founded all of the modern scientific disciplines were, let's see, Christians. Mm -hmm. And that happened in Europe, in Christendom. It didn't have to. There were more people outside of Europe 
and more non-Christians on planet Earth at the time. Yet science leaps off, not in the East, not in the North African continent, not in Persia. It leaps off in Europe under what we call Christendom. So that's why I think we, and you can reconstruct the story of Jesus just from the journals of the science fathers. As a matter of fact, you can learn more about Jesus from the science fathers. These are the founders of all the scientific disciplines Mm -hmm. than you can from the church fathers. And when you realize that, you realize, yeah, you have to destroy an awful lot to get rid of Jesus. And and here's the last thing I'll say about it. There used to be a a thing called a trilemma that C.S. Lewis first posited. It was the idea that Jesus is either, I need to write about this because I didn't put this in the book and I should have. It's either that Jesus is liar, lunatic, or Lord. Which is it? Which is most reasonable? Well, there's a newer way of looking at this. Um, Jesus is either a fictional character. And that's the claim of a lot of Jesus mythicists who believe that Jesus is just another myth in a series of myths. Or he's just another ancient sage. Or he is the God of the universe. Now, if he's a myth, tell me, if he's just fiction, what other fictional character has ever had even remotely any kind of impact on human culture that Jesus of Nazareth has? Doesn't it's exist. Not, you, you're not going to find it. You could say, oh, well, look, people know uh, Peter Pan. Okay, is Peter Pan the foundation of a natural philosophy that later became the scientific Do revolution? Do we count time Peter? based on Peter yeah. Pan? Yeah. yeah. So, so no. So, so if you cannot find another example and can't even imagine an example of fiction doing this, there's good reason to believe that Jesus is not fiction. But you will also not find another mortal human in the history of mortal humans who's had this kind of impact, whose story can be so uh, completely reconstructed. There there is no other example of a mortal who had look at all the people who lived in the first century none of them combined had the impact that jesus had on culture these were world leaders these were empire leaders these were poets and authors none of them had the kind of impact that jesus did if you cannot find another example of a mortal human who's had this impact you've now got a good reason to believe that jesus is something more than a mortal human it turns out that this kind of impact makes the most sense with the third option if God enters into his, his creation, wouldn't you expect there to be a huge set of ripples? And that's what we see in, in the fallout of, of the common era. So I think in the end, this is now, again, I, I, I'm suggesting a, a thought experiment in which every New Testament has been destroyed. You'd still be stuck with the Jesus of Nazareth. We know from the New Testament because his story permeates every important aspect of culture. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I'm so glad that you wrote a book that was so accessible. Again, guys, the name of the book is Person of Interest. It is in the show notes. You can go there and you can buy it yourself. But it being accessible makes it important for a lot of guys because as we know and as you know your publisher knows a lot of men don't read and so the as as dumb as it sounds the fact that there are pictures in here that helps the fact that, that there are other narratives in here it helps guys so this is a very very important book because of how accessible it is to these large ideas and you introduced me to a lot of things that I thought I knew about like all the extra biblical evidence surrounding why Jesus was who he was even the writings of people that knew about Jesus believed in him but hated him like those are important things to look at because it's like you you would have you would be encouraged to not write something glowing about somebody that you hated, but you wrote about him, which does prove more that he existed than he's just some more sort of mythical character. So guys, we'll, we'll move on from the book, but it's it's a fantastic book. But I do want to get into something that you and I were talking about off air. Because, now we're going to get into guy issues. Yeah, this is the best stuff. This is what I was hoping we would get past that book stuff fast so we can talk about the stuff that really matters. Let's do book it. Book stuff is good stuff, my friend. Book stuff is good stuff. But let, let's talk about manhood a little bit because yeah. I was giving you a, a little bit of a rundown as to who your audience is today and kind of who the guys are that listen to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. And I mean, you, you didn't even miss a beat. Some people are like, oh, that's interesting. And let me ask you some follow-up questions. You're like, nope. I get it. Those are my people too. So for yeah. you, I just want to kind of set it up even broadly. And I do want to get into Mark Driscoll here in a second, but I want to set it up more broadly about the state of manhood in the church. I talk about this all the time. Mm-hmm. I write about it. I think we're at a paltry level because again, that, that poem of, you know, hard times make strong men, strong men make good times, good yes. times make weak men, weak men make hard times. I feel yep. like, especially in the church, we have a bunch of weak, effeminate men making it hard on us and making it harder for us to have an impact in culture, especially in the West. But what is your yes. opinion of the state of manhood within Christendom right now? Well, it's, it's not just within Christendom. I think it's in, at least in the West, in, in our nation particularly. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's exacerbated within Christianity because I think we've got good reason and good examples, biblical reasons, to be more than we are right now. Um, 
there's my audience. And if I look at, the, you know, the kind of the social media analytics is, is like either sometimes between about 75 and 80% men mm-hmm. and the rest are, and I'm always like lamenting that. Like I wish as an author that, um, you want to be 50, 50, you want Cause mm-hmm. we, you're, you're trying to reach the world with the gospel, but I think we have been shaped by God for a specific purpose. And it doesn't surprise me then that the kinds of paramilitary life that that police officers have to live would probably be attractive to men or at least be read by men more than anybody else. So I get that. What I see though, is that, um, now I'm going to say some things that are probably going to be unpopular, but maybe you already agree with me on these. So uh, my biggest influence was, was Warner Wallace. I'm Jay Warner Wallace because my grandfather's name is Warner Hmm. and you know, World War II guy um, in that generation of, of men. And that was a generation of men, and my grandfather was like this, where if you're like, you know, working on a table saw and you cut off your thumb, you just stick a band-aid on and keep working, okay? And if yeah. I was working with him as a kid and I would like drive a nail through my hand, he would just pull it out and say, okay, we're good. Let's go. Like, like no, there's no tears. There's no yeah. time for tears. Like, rub some dirt in it. We're going to go. And and this is his, his view. But that sense of of toughness served me really well. I'll give you an example of this. Um, I could go to work and I could still do this. Um, and if it's a, a horrific crime involving a three-year-old, um, I have a short memory and I put things in boxes. And I know that my job is to solve this and not get caught up in the fact that I also have a three-year-old. And I'm going to go home tonight and hold my three-year-old. And I can't be torn up about what happened today because there'll be another nightmare tomorrow. That's just the nature of working homicides. I can imagine if you're a coroner, if you've ever been to an autopsy, I go to a lot of autopsies because in California, if you are assigned the, as the IO, the investigating officer of a, of a murder, you'll have to be present for the autopsy of the victim because I'm going to have to testify for the coroner. Coroner's not going to testify at the prelim. I'm going to testify for him to save some mm-hmm. money. But I have to go to a lot of autopsies. And, and they're, they're horrific. I can only imagine what you must be. And I'll, I'll be honest. There's times when I met some corners that seem to be a little bit odd. Yeah. Right. But it's probably because they're cutting up weird things all the time and it must wear on you. Um, but, but I've realized I've learned to just rub some dirt in it and keep going. And that's my job. My job is to make sure that when I come home, my wife has no idea what I just experienced. Now I see that as a responsibility. Now, am I just an archaic old knucklehead who sees this as my responsibility? And and so my first reaction is, okay, this is part of what it means. Now I, I could be wrong about this, but but my sense of it is is that the people who are on scripture, the pages of scripture, probably suffered a lot more and had to see a lot more and had to, to man up a lot more than we are in this generation. And there's a sense of biblical manhood in which I. I, I see that I have a role to play that is different than the role my wife plays. And I felt this way as an atheist because I knew that the biochemistry that I was experiencing was different than her evolved. Bio. I would have said this is a matter of evolution. This is a matter of evolutionary processes. We are at a point right now in our evolutionary development in which my biochemistry is different than hers. It's going to allow me to do some things that she can't do. And it's going to allow her to do some things that I clearly can't do. And together, we're going to take that mix of biochemistry and create something even better in a family context. That was my view as an atheist. It's not that much different now as a believer, but I know that I have a role to play. And that is a very protective role because for the most part, I'm a foot taller than my wife. I'm, you know, I'm probably 60 pounds heavier than my wife. And that is my role to play. I I always thought it was a biochemistry issue, but I do think we're at a place right now in the church and this is one of the reasons why I lament the whole issue with, with Driscoll. Um, and I have not talked publicly about it. But look, everyone's listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Everyone's mm-hmm. been listening to it for ages. And so it was, it was the number one podcast at one point in the, in the summer. Right. And not just in a Christian category, in any category. Mm-hmm. So it's clearly being listened to by everyone in the country. And, and, the, and I'm, 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 I'm bummed about it. Because there were some things that that Driscoll talked about that were became popular and, and became viral because nobody else was talking about it. Now you can argue that yeah, I would I don't agree with, with with Mark on every view he holds about biblical manhood. Don't get me wrong, uh, 
I actually disagree on a lot, but what I loved about it was he was at least talking about it. You know, I, I actually give him credit for talking about it and giving, getting a lot of it wrong than just not talking about it at all. Of course. Yeah. Right. And that's what my fear is, is that we have gotten to a point where we're afraid to even acknowledge that there are differences between men and women because the culture is trying to convince us there are none. Right. Look, well, it, was it just, uh, was it the, what, the Ivy League school that the swimmer just Penn, this week? University of Penn. Yeah. The swimmer is a, uh, it, it just beat all of the records. Now, look, if I'm a swimmer who's a biological female on a team in which there's a biological male who identifies as a female who's on the team and, and basically comes in blowing out every single record I set here, I don't know how this is even fair to women. I mean, my, right. the protective nature of me as a man says that's not fair if that was my daughter, if that was my wife, if that was my sister. That wouldn't be fair to her. Am I, am I crazy for thinking that? Well, now, no. look, I think when we say these kinds of things, we run the risk of being entirely canceled by, you know what, to be honest, you, you, if you, you can't fire me if you didn't hire me. And, and I'll be honest, mm -hmm. I, that's why I waited till I had a pension to do any of this stuff. Cause I now realize I'm in a place where I don't do any of this because I'm worried about who I am anymore. Right. I mean, that's already been settled. I'm an old man now. Um, this is just really about what do we think the Bible teaches about these issues? And I think that you, to, to think that the Bible does not teach that there's a difference between men and women is to be ignorant of what the Bible teaches. Well, it's ignorant of what the Bible teaches and it's ignorant of basic mammalian biology as well. But yeah. I think one thing that's to kind of go back to the Driscoll thing, kind of how manhood is treated inside the church. And this happened because you and I are both alums of Justin Brierley's podcast over in the UK. Un yeah. uh, unbelievable. Um, and the thing about that interview is they tried to really attach me to Mark Driscoll and I kept being fairly dismissive of it. I was like, I don't know Mark Driscoll. I don't know him personally. And my guess is that neither do you guys, you know, you listen to a podcast that a bunch of other people listen to and all of a sudden, right. you know, the guy's life story. That's, that's all of us. The, that's right. But the, the guy I was debating on the other side, he wrote a book and I read it beforehand and you know, it's not really great for my audience type of a thing, but there was a demonization of stoicism in his book. And I don't mean like philosophy, stoic philosophy. I mean, of stoicism in a man, kind of what you said earlier, not bringing your day home and taking it out on your wife, right? You know, not bringing all that burden home because this guy, this author, and we couldn't talk about it on the show in for a lot of reasons, but you know, it just, we didn't get to it, but he tried to make the, the direct line between men withholding their emotions and suicide. Now, are there men out there that have killed themselves because they've suppressed their emotions for decades and decades? I'm, I'm sure something like that has happened. And in your line of work, you probably saw men that suppressed their emotions, went out and killed somebody and then killed themselves. I'm sure those things have happened. But this idea that when a man is in control of his emotions, as Jordan Peterson talks about, you know, how the meek will inherit the earth, that doesn't mean weakness. It means knowing how to use the sword, but That's leaving right. it sheathed, right? Like yep. not just taking it out it's to show power it to the world. under control. Yeah, right. power so under control. That's the, that's the thing that might be one of the most nefarious through points of the attack on masculinity is this fact that in, if, unless you're a bloviating, crying idiot at all times, just constantly, right. you know, wringing out your emotions on the rest of the public, that you're, you're somehow not a modern man. Am I crazy or does that, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. I'll just say this to you. Um, my kids have seen me uh, lament and cry about issues related to my family, right? Issues related maybe to my dad, issues, you know, because there's things about which I'm going to cry, okay? Because they, they emotionally impact me. But I've chosen not to get emotionally involved or not to be allow my emotions to control what I do professionally. Mm -hmm. So yes, is it tragic what I have to see every day? Absolutely. Sometimes it's even more tragic than you care to speak about. At the same time, I know that that my job is to to manage that. Now it's harder. Like so, if I'm with my kids and we're talking about my my dad or talking about you know something in the family or my own kids. If I'm talking about my kids, yeah, I'm going to cry for my kids. There's an appropriate expression of emotion. I don't think that men are emotionless. We just have to, we we are able to control when and how we express those emotions. But by the way, my wife's also very good at this. It's not as though we are somehow the superior in this area. We are just different. We're wired differently. At the same time, I'll just I just know that my my wiring is not like my wife's caregiving wiring. She's a much better caregiver. I just am so glad I have her because she compliments what I am not. But to think that we are somehow exactly the same. Uh, it's a, to be treated fairly, and I'm not talking about equity here. I'm talking about equality. To be treated fairly is different 
than ignoring any differences to say we have no differences. I think there are clear differences between moms and dads and the roles we play with our kids. I have a role as a dad. I play with my daughters in addition to my sons. It's very different than Susie's role. And, and we get different kinds of phone calls. I noticed that the kids will call Susie for the kind of things they want that they don't call me for. But they will call me for the kinds of things they don't need from Susie. Well, it's because they understand the innate difference in the kinds of support. And both of them are looking for support from us, a, a word of encouragement. But, but when they want that kind of word of encouragement they expect to get from mom, they call mom. When they want the kind they get from dad, they call dad because they recognize that we respond differently. And it's not a cultural issue. It's not that we were raised in the church and so we have this baggage. No, it's not that. We weren't raised in the church. You know, neither one of us was raised in the church. It's just about we recognize these, and the, I mean, even if we don't recognize them, we cannot resist but respond to our genes on occasion. So, so I think this is part of it, right, is that I'm just not willing to jettison these differences. And I don't see those differences as a liability. I've never thought that one sex is essential and the other is just contingent. One is necessary. The other is contingent. No, I never saw it that way. I see them both as necessary, but, but, but neither one is, I don't see one. I just never have seen it that way as, but they're so, they're so needed that I am worried that we are moving toward a world in which I was just reading something yesterday about how many men and women are being raised in intact families in which their biological parents are still together. Mm-hmm. It's a very small percentage right now. It's right. dropped like 40%, I think, in the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. It's scary what's happening. We've been People are trying to convince us that any form of household is the same kind of family. Now, the, you can have households. It could be great in a number of ways. But family, that's going to be a much harder term to redefine because there is a biological. You realize, now I'm going to say the most controversial thing, right? That you realize that young people do best. In every measurable category, if it's economics, if it's health, if it's mental health, if it's just physical health, if it's if it's incarceration rates, if it's rate of teenage pregnancy, whatever the category you want to pick, pick it. Two biological parents in a low conflict setting will always produce the best results. Two biological parents in a low conflict setting. That does not mean we're all going to achieve that. I was not raised that way. One biological parent in a low conflict setting. My kids were not raised that way. Two of them are our biological children. Two are adopted. Those two are not being raised by their biological parents in a low conflict setting. We're doing the best we can. It's better than how they would have been raised, but it isn't ideal. The ideal would have been if they had their biological parents with this relationship. Well, you mentioned the word ideal, and that's also what's on a, uh, being attacked as well, because this idea of one man, one woman having children and having masculine and feminine roles inside the household, and also the the secular sociological data points to an intact family, right, with with, with low drama that also attends church. Like that, it's almost as yeah. if we were built for it, right? You know what I mean? It's almost like this was part yeah. of the plan. But, well, but Jim, it, it, I would have said as an atheist too. As an atheist, I would have yeah. said no. I think. Uh, holding to transcendent values that unify our daily kind of desires is healthier. So for me, the transcendent God, before I even thought there was a transcendent God, was marriage because my parents did not hold theirs together. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that was always the thing. I love marriage more than I love Susie because to me, that was the thing that was missing. And I knew that if I met someone like Susie, that I would hold on tight. And that's, but, but I think we have a great marriage because that, that was the transcendent ideal before there was a transcendent ideal known as God to us is that we, that was bigger than us. We would bend our knee to that thing, marriage and whatever. Now I want the best kind of marriage. So I'm about to take good. In other words, mm-hmm. I want a passionate, crazy, all that stuff that's in marriage. I want that with her, with her. And so that, that becomes the ideal that transcends us, that unifies us. We're both chasing that ideal. Well, now that thing we're chasing is Jesus. And the closer we come to Jesus, the closer we come to each other. So, so it's that trajectory kind of way of living that even as non, I think even if you look at the values held by non-believers, you will find that they do usually find some replacement of transcendence that guides their marriage, that guides their lives together. 
We just know that that you know, this is why, for example, twelve-step uh, programs uh, see, uh, encourage people to seek something transcendent. Any higher power will do. But it turns out that when you see the twelve-step programs that are entirely uh, Christian or biblical, they actually do better because now you can put a name and an identity on that transcendent thing that guides you. So I think in the end, um, a lot of this is going to come back to a biblical worldview because, shocker, the Bible describes the world the way it really is. And so in the end, you're going to find wisdom on those pages. If nothing else, I would have said as an atheist, well, yeah, because if you if you bang things out for 2,000 years as humans, you will work out and start to notice what's true about humans. You'll probably end up writing a document that seems ancient because it is, and it reflects the accurate view of humans because we haven't changed. And if, if that's all it is, it's still worth your time. Okay. So, but it turns out if it's from a divine source, well, now it even has the added benefit is that it can guide you. It's not just uh, coincidentally true. It's actually from the mind of your creator who's designed you for a purpose. Absolutely. I appreciate you going into all that detail. And I know we're, we're running short on time, but I do want to wrap up with this question because I found it interesting because you became a Christian at such a, a later age than maybe even a lot of people that are in my friend group is how do you now currently deal with doubts? Because for a lot of people, they deal with doubts differently. Like I mentioned, the seven-year-old saved when they're a little kid. They deal with doubts differently because they kind of are carrying the scaffolding with them as they age. Whereas your brain was fully developed in your mid-20s and you didn't really start dealing with these questions of God until your mid-30s. So now as an adult who's kind of, I guess, you know, done your career and you've got your family and all those different things, how do doubts, how, how do you deal with those now? Okay, so so this is probably part of my, my my work life that we just talked about. What it is, I think, to take a, an approach that is probably what we might say is more masculine or more compartmentalized. There used to be an old book that talks about how men are like waffles and women are like spaghetti mm -hmm. in a good way, that men compartmentalize things into those little waffle squares, and we leave it that way. But women see the interconnectedness of everything. So if something over here gets tickled, it ends up having a result over here. I wish I was more like that because I find I'm, I'm almost like scare myself sometimes in my ability to compartmentalize. So if I'm doing a case and I've got to go to the crime scene now and that kid's going to be there with the wound and it's going to be a mess and I'm going to have to deal with that. But I just deal with that, collect the evidence. I kind of guide that process. Next day, well, it turns out I now have already hurdled that day. I'm not lingering in, in, in wallowing in yesterday. I'm working on the thing that's in front of me today. It's in a different square of the waffle. And I've already compartmentalized that from yesterday. So I'm already, I'm already over it. Even if it shook me up, I'm not shook up today because I know I have to have this skill set in place. It's in the next square of the waffle. So now I do today's stuff. Now that this is a pain in the rear. I got to go to the autopsy. Oh, I got to do this. I got to interview these five people. But that's another square. And then the next day, that's in yesterday's square. I'm not thinking about that. I, I'm really good at turning corners and leaving things in the past in the past. Well, doubts for me were all the stuff that I came in with. I didn't think any of this was true. And so I wanted to know, well, what about this? Well, what about that? Each one is a hurdle that I had to jump for myself before I could ever look at scripture seriously. But like the waffle squares, once I jump the hurdle, it's over there now. I'm already over here now. I'm not going to have that doubt again. That was over there. I already had that doubt. I have enough of a memory to recognize I've already covered that. I've already asked and answered that question. Now the question is, what does this square of the waffle present me with? What is it that God has for me in all the days that are still coming? I'm not going to, this is one of those attributes that I, I want to see in my own boys is that, look, rub some dirt in it. Now you will, now I'm not saying you don't examine your doubts. Of course I did. But for me, and it might just be the detective thing. It might just be that I've had, you know, 30 years of having to do this. And so now I'm like, okay, I'm stuck with this approach. That could be what it is. I will tell you this. My dad showed me the first murder scene I ever saw was in, uh, I was 13 years old. It was in uh, 1974. He showed me uh, the murder scene from a set of uh, a triple murder. It was horrific. Uh, it was actually four people were killed. Their throats were cut so deeply. They almost decapitated these people. And he had the film. He was showing me the film. I was 13. It was in black and white. We got about maybe 10 minutes into it when they started moving the bodies around. And I said, turn it off. I wasn't ready to put it in a compartment yet. 
And maybe it's because I, from that point on, I got better and better and better and better at just putting it in the compartment. I'm still able to cry for the things that matter, but I refuse to cry for the things that I need to be mature about. I need to, otherwise I would do how many cases? I do one case and fold. I do one day on the job and fold up. No, I, I have to do, you know, the, all the career I had, I have to do. So, so the same is true for me with any hesitation. Once I've conquered it, once I've answered it for myself, I don't need to re-ask it. I've already answered it. Also, I have really low expectations. Maybe that's bad. <laughs> what I mean is God is good, but I never expected him to give me a good day. We're in a fallen world. We're not in the, in the garden. We're in the world after the fall. This is a world that's so deeply broken that it needs a savior. Why would you think you're going to have good days in this kind of a world? If you do, good for you. But my expectations are so low that I can still call God good on a really crummy day. Because my expectation was not, okay, I believe in God now. Therefore, he's going to take care of every prayer. Every prayer is going to get answered. Every day is going to be like, you know, like dancing in, in the field of flowers. No, that's not what it's going to be. It's going to be the, the, the same broken life. People are still going to get murdered. Children are still going to be tortured and abused. This is still going to happen, even though there is a good God who knows that our lives are not limited to the 90 years here on planet Earth. When you're a million years into eternity, I don't care how bad your life was here. This 90 years will seem like a millisecond compared to eternity. You're not today fretting what happened to you in the first six weeks of your life. You don't even remember what happened to you in the first six weeks of your life. Eternity will make this 90 years feel like the first six seconds. And so in the end, I want to have an eternal perspective. And that means my expectations for this 90 years is pretty low. And that's why I'm never disappointed. I love it. Well, hey, Jim, we've gone everywhere in this conversation. You've given us a lot of time today and we appreciate it, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now you have to go back and edit out all the stuff that was offensive. No, I, no I'm going to make sure the volume is put louder. up on the, yeah, yeah I, make sure I, I figured I as much. Yeah, I, I don't want to miss it. All right, Jim yeah. Warner Wallace, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Jim Warner Wallace. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness. And specifically, we do that by providing content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the links I've got for you today, one, I've got a link to the book that we spent the most of the time talking about, and that was Person of Interest. So you got the link there so you can go pick it up for yourself. Also, I got a link to Jim's website. So he's got blogs on there. He's got videos on there. He's got links to his social channels on there. All that's there. Check that out. And also, I've got a link to Jim's YouTube channel. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. And you can also check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we want to also thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>